last fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome once again to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. This is Steve Fielder, your host, coming at you one more time by the miracle of Al Gore's internet. And uh, I have a special guest with us here today that I just can't wait to introduce you to. But before I do that, I want to send a shout out to all the folks that reached out to me and to my family over the last couple of weeks. As If you follow me on social media, you know that uh, uh, unfortunately, my brother and I had to say goodbye to our mother. Uh, Mom was 100 uh, years and 11 days old. I think she just finally said, I'm done. This is enough. I'm going to go home. And uh, she went peacefully in her sleep. And, uh, you know, such a legacy, such a life that uh, uh, she lived before us. And, of course, we miss her very, very much. But I just wanted to say to everyone out there who reached out in any way to us through posts on social media, through text or in emails, phone calls, cards that we received, beautiful flowers at her service, and coming out to the visitation. It all meant so very, very much to us. And on behalf of my brother Randy, uh, my son Christopher, my brother's daughters Madison and Miranda, and I, our entire family, we just want to say thank you. It really meant a lot to us. Uh, today, as we are podcasting, uh, it's the first day of the 2022 Tournament of Champions Finals out in Greencastle, Indiana. So we'll send a belated, because when this <laughs> this comes out, the, the winner will have been declared. But we'll send a belated good luck to all those 96 final contestants that are out there going for that $50,000 first prize. And I'm sure we'll have some announcements as we go along in future episodes. All right, I want to cut right to the chase here and introduce to you somebody that has become one of my favorite people uh, down through the years. I've known our guest for quite a long time. She and I uh, uh, worked together uh, as writers for American Cooner Magazine, and uh, I think that's probably where I first uh, met uh, our guest, and I'm going to let her say hello to you right now. So happy to have Amy Kovac Thomas with us today. How are you, Amy? I'm doing well, Steve. And actually, we met through PKC before American Cooner. Oh, we did. Yeah. Is that I right? Sh- I was showing my uh, cur dog, Swamp Rat, or maybe it, it may have been even before he was born. And um, you were set up, and I'd come from National Kennel Club with the cur dogs, and I walk into the tennis center at uh, down in Kentucky. And it was just set up so beautifully, and you were sitting up there and doing all the announcements, and that was my first PKC event, and it was my first encounter with you. Wow. Well, that's that's interesting to know. It seems like I've known you forever because I've been reading your stuff, you know, and we've had the occasion to work together uh, in the American Cooner Full Cry booth out at uh, the events, like uh, especially Grand American and uh, perhaps Autumn Oaks and, and different ones. But, uh, you know, I uh, I want our listeners uh, to know who you are, Amy. So I want you to give me just a little background about 
where uh, you were born, uh, maybe something about your uh, years growing up. I know that your family has been involved very uh, heavily with tree dogs, especially cur dogs, through the years. And and then uh, you have an interesting profession and all that. So just give us the backstory a little bit on Amy. Okay. So I grew up um, in House Springs, Missouri. And ironically, I still work there for the school district at the bottom of the hill where I went to high school. Um, it's now a middle school. And I spent my entire life there until 11 years ago when my husband and I got remarried and we bought a small farm out here in DeSoto. So my whole life was really in in House Springs. I see. So uh, now how far is that from St. Louis? It's probably about 40 minutes. Just 40 minutes west, I guess, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. All right, fine. And near, are you near uh, Montgomery City where... Uh, John Wick's um, um, factory no. and all that was, or is that farther out? No, I'm closer, like, to St. Louis, um, really, like, where Six Flags is in Missouri. We're in that in that area. Oh, We're in okay. the hills in Missouri here. I got you. So you're a hillbilly then. I'm a hillbilly, and I married <laughs> a hillbilly twice, so. <laughs> they say things are better second time around, you know. It's hey. like chilly. Got more seasoning the second time. Uh, <laughs> well, that's kind of like Ella and me. You know, we were sweethearts in high school and uh, dated for a couple of years, you know, and I never forgot her down through all the years, but it was probably close to 40 years that we didn't see each other. I think we knew that the other existed maybe somewhere, but, uh, and then through uh, that, uh, miracle of internet that i talked about earlier we we got connected and uh, and of course it, it's been great but hey listen tell me a little bit about um your growing up years you know with the dogs and all is that all i have the dogs always been a part of your life let me tell you an interesting story um and it kind of goes back to Greencastle, indiana now, my parents are no longer married, but in, in the early years, they when they were getting married, my mother's wedding gift to my father was a black and tan coonhound that came from a, a, a breeder in Greencastle, Indiana. And they drove to Greencastle, Indiana, and they picked a dog up that my dad would name Drummer. And they picked him out of the litter because some, he had broken his tail and he had a stovepipe tail, so he stuck out. <laughs> and like my whole life. There's always been a coon dog. There's pictures of me, probably my second Christmas, sitting on drummer underneath the Christmas tree. Um, I took my first steps in the basement of um, an old German farmer that lived up by us that my dad coon hunted with his son. So my mom wasn't thrilled about that. I used to ride between my dad and and his you know his friend whose father that was that I just referenced to, and you know they would climb trees. They had contests on live coons because they were so thin here at that time that they would, you know, the different clubs would collect live coons and release them to areas where they felt like they could thrive better. So yeah, my whole life, Steve, I have been, <laughs> I, I just got my first non-tree dog five years ago. I bought a yellow lab, still right. a sporting dog, but it's the first <laughs> non-tree dog I have ever owned. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing, and and that's pretty much my story too, you know. And the listeners have heard my story many times on here, but 
Uh, yeah, the only ha- uh, only dogs that we knew at my house were were hounds and tree dogs and all. And of course, now uh, recently, uh, at the uh, request of my wife, uh, we've obtained a little. Uh, he was supposed to be a miniature dachshund. Uh, we got him when he was eight weeks old, and uh, uh, I drove all the way up to Richmond. Well, I didn't drive. Yeah, no, no. I flew into Dayton, Ohio, and drove over to Richmond, Indiana, where Autumn is held, and a breeder there uh, had these dogs that we found out about, and uh, and then I uh, drove that puppy all the way back to Florida, about 19 and a half hours worth, and he kind of rules the roost around here. He's six months old now. His name is Louie, and he's a black and tan. I mean, he looks like a black and tan hound. Actually, the tan part is real rich red, like a red bone. But he, he's a real dude, and we enjoy him a lot. But uh, my dogs are kind of farmed out around. I've got uh, co-ownership in a plot pup and also in a track man pup that I got from Randy Smith, a semen pup. And then uh, I've got uh, a three-year-old walker dog that I also got from Randy that's with a, a friend up in Virginia. So still got some coon dogs, but living in this retirement community here in Florida, it doesn't work out all that well. You know, it, it, it's okay with us, but it, the dogs don't like it as well. So, <laughs> but anyway, all right, well, um, tell me a little bit about what you do, what your professional um, experience there, Amy. Okay. So I am my, I think my 28th year in education. I spent the, the first 19 working with behavior children and then they did away with my position and I, they put me in the position I am in now and I'm a school psychological examiner. So I do all the special education testing, all the report writing, see if they, you know, if children meet criteria, you know, I, I deal with parents, teachers, and then I, when Billy and I got remarried, I went back. I had started my, ma- I have a master's in education. I was halfway through my master's in counseling. And when we got divorced, I needless to say that went to the, the wayside. But when we got remarried, it was one of those things that just was still unfinished for me. And so he supported me and I'm also a licensed professional therapist in addition to working for the school. So no, I'm not a writer. For my full-time job, I do this for fun. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about your writing for sure, you know, because that's uh, most of, of our listeners are, are know you as a, a feature writer for American Cooner and Full Crime magazines. And uh, uh, but okay, let's go back and, and talk about uh, the cur dog in your life. Okay, <laughs> you, <laughs> your dad. Uh, Ray Kovac, right? Uh, did he start out with cur dogs? I know that he kind of became, well, you said he had a black and tan that he got in in, uh, in where? Greencastle, you said? Yep. Yeah. We're, was we're that from the tournament the, of champions tonight. Was that from the Cosner bloodline? Those old-fashioned not- black and tans? He had the long ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was as old-fashioned as you get. Yeah. Well, there were two or three kennels that were well-known for those dogs back in the 40s and all. One of them was in Greencastle. 
One of them was up in Niles, Michigan, and there was another over in Ohio, and the name of the town right now is escaping me. But uh, I I, uh, did quite a bit of research on those dogs back in the days at UKC when we were doing special breed issues on on the you know the separate breeds of dogs but uh okay so where did the cur dog come in to your family a fluke yeah um <laughs> the <laughs> the motor family is the the farming family that i referred to earlier um so LT was the father and he had a big farm and his son was Billy Motor and he and my dad were both Vietnam vets and they had they had seen some things in their life that that young men probably shouldn't see Oops. and they kind of bonded over coon hunting hmm. when my dad my dad was the first one to actually move out of the city to the country and so they got to know each other and my dad had hounds all the way through um but Billy's dad had gone to an auction and he bought a Stevens Kerr from um from the auction and he took it back to the farm and they used it to run hogs, run cattle. Um the dog was so smart. He played with the kids, he played soccer with the kids. Um he squirrel hunted, he coon hunted. His name was Homer. And he was by far probably the smartest dog and beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. And Homer, um, Billy had uh, walkers off of Deep River Mike. He had a dog that was called um, Big River Dan, who was the Missouri State Champion, and he had a female off of him. And Homer was nine months old, and Sally, Dan's daughter, came in heat, and nobody really worried about Homer because he was a pup. Mm. And they should have. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was so, another famous Homer a story about that, about the dog that uh, uh, was the sire of Bone Collector, the Homer dog. You know, he was the product of a puppy uh, getting uh, too familiar with his mother. And that's how he came about, and that's ultimately how the great Bone Collector came along. But maybe just something in that name. I don't know. I'm thinking. (laughs) Okay. Go ahead. So two puppies were born. Obviously, Homer's sperm count was still young. You know, he was young. And uh, there was a black one, a male, and they named him Jesse. And there was a black and white one, and they named it Daisy. And, of course, Dukes of Hazard was, was the main <laughs> show on TV at that time. So hence the names. Just good old boys. Yeah. Well, my dad had a um, blue tick English that we had named Rose. And he had she had heartworms, and he had gotten her treated, and she was a really good dog. But she he was hunting off what's, how, what's called Howell's Island here um, in our area. And it, it's famous for people getting lost and having it helicoptered out. It's hmm. surrounded by, by the, you know, the rivers. So Rose um, was in the river, you know, and we never saw her again. So my dad doesn't know if like the heartworms and the, you know, the pressure on her heart, you know, if she'd have stayed probably not swimming in that river, she would have been fine. So he was without a dog and Billy had offered him uh, the, the female pup. They were keeping the male and he had offered him the female pup prior. And those puppies were born on Easter, which is kind of funny in itself. And my dad had said, no, it's okay. You know, I've got a dog. I don't, I don't need another one. Well, when Rose disappeared, my dad went and he, he took Daisy. And every dog in my kennel goes back to Daisy. Hmm. I see. 
So we were so, not cur people until then. Okay. <laughs> so you were pretty much instrumental in breeding the curs and all that and perpetuating uh, or propelling that idea of cur dogs right along with your dad from the very start then. Is that right? I was nine years old. And every, what? like I said, I'm, I'm going to be 51 next Thursday. And a woman that actually him. tells her age, what? What is Billy this? Sweet. It's a first. He always, you heard it right here, folks. <laughs> right here. I won't tell you my weight, though. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's awesome. That's awesome. You're a very young 51. I'll say that for <laughs> sure. Well, okay. So, so the Kerr dogs then. Uh, well, what a. Um, at what point did you or your dad decide that you wanted to crossbreed the curs with hounds? Well, Daisy was actually half hound, half cur. My first, oh, that's right. our first dog yeah. was half yeah. hound, half cur. Okay, okay. So that's she, the foundation then. Yeah. She couldn't be registered um, until National Kennel Club started allowing for train curs. So we would go to grade hunts. Um, we would take, Daisy was a phenomenal dog. When you asked me about dogs that were historic, Daisy was, Daisy would crack peanuts with her mouth. Daisy would open doors with, you know, handles with her mouth. Daisy, we have so many stories. She would, my dad bought a harness and she would pull my brother Alex on the sled when it snowed. There was nothing the dog couldn't do. And we'd always be like, that's amazing. That is so amazing. <laughs> and hence, amazing has been in the name ever since we were able to register. She was amazing, Daisy. So we took her to Millstot for plot days, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. probably someplace you're familiar I've with. I've been there and for sure. Daisy could swim. And this is when, um, you know, they had the, the swim races. Um, oh, gosh, what's the place that was up? It always happened the same time as like Autumn Oaks. Um, oh, oh, the Kenton National. Kenton Nationals, like... And and swim dogs were a hot item. Well, Daisy mm-hmm. beat every dog there in the swim races. And my dad was offered a lot of money for her that day. And then they had the bear train contest back when you could have a bear and it just had a collar right. and a chain. And, you know, the plots right. were baying it, but they needed it to go up a tree. Well, the, the cur dog in her just made contact and she grabbed it and it climbed up the tree. You know, and as a little kid, you know, my brother and I, we were like, oh. Oh my gosh, our dog, you know, I, I mean, we went there and, and we did, we cleaned up with what we participated in with a, <laughs> a great dog. And yeah. we had had, like I said, nothing against the, the hounds that we, we had some, some really good coon hounds, but Daisy just made life easy. My dad had started his own business. He couldn't hunt the way he used to. We could squirrel hunt instead of being out all night. She just, it made, it made life it changed our lives, just yeah. that one dog. Okay, well, tell me more about her. What did she look like? She looked like a Holstein cow. She was oh, yeah. black and white with a little brindle on her face. I see, I see. Uh, Long about flag how- tail. It's back when the walkers had the flag, you know, walkers mm-hmm. were known for having the mm-hmm. flag tails and had a big old flag tail and would knock stuff off the coffee table with it. All my dogs now are, are bobtailed and nat- we bred in the natural bob gene and with these labs, I'm not used to having tails anymore, you know, so <laughs> well, a while. Yeah. Did she open on track? Yes. Yeah. Okay. She was, so she she was took- not a lot, though. Just, you know, just a little. Um, we lost Daisy several times, and we always got her back. Um, 
she was, there were a lot of stories about Daisy, amazing Daisy. Well, as a coon hound, um, we hear this a lot today, uh, the lack of the hounds being accurate. Uh, was she fairly accurate when she treed? I mean, did you usually oh, see, see something in the tree? I think that's part of the cur. There was, there were no empty trees with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, like I said, she, she was by far the best dog. She was accurate. She was smart. Yeah. But we couldn't mm-hmm. register. We couldn't register her until she was, I think, 11 years old, 10, 9, 10, 11 years old. Hmm. I, yeah. Billy and I um, got together not long after we were actually able to, to register her and start participating in events. And she was too old at that point to do things. Now, was that NKC registration or were you talking about UKC registration? Nope, that, that was National Kennel Club. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. My brother still was active? instrumental in UKC. Yeah, I, I know that. In fact, he actually worked for UKC for a period of time, didn't he, with their uh, yes. uh, Kerr Dog program and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, is the NKC still active? I don't know. Yes. Uh, okay. Primarily with the Kerr Dogs? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, all right. Um so I guess Daisy's probably going to be at the top of the list of your favorite dogs then, right? Yes, I, she is. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, did she produce? Did she reproduce herself? She did. Um, she had a daughter named Star, and Star is who we um, based everything off of. The first time we crossed Star, we crossed her onto Fred Sauer's um, sport dog. Mm. And then we crossed her the second time to... Um, Gary Porter's chief dog. He was the son of Jesse James and Penny. It was a, a very well-known cross in the original Mountain Curse. And that's actually where the the bobtail came from, the, the bobtail gene that we still have in there. And so um, we took Star and we had those puppies off of her. And then we would cross half-brother to half-sister. And it was those puppies off that half-brother, half-sister that we started crossing onto the hounds. That's when we went back to the hound because we were getting pretty tight with the curve. When I was at UKC, I noticed that UKC had a habit of stamping papers as inbred, but it wasn't consistent in the amount of inbreeding that they were indicating. Uh, you know, they would take a dog, for instance, that was a half brother sister and call it inbred but wouldn't take an uncle-niece cross and call it inbred or a grandfather-granddaughter cross and call it inbred, which is actually the same percentage of inbreeding. So I propose that we say, okay, if it is a full brother-sister cross, a mother to her son or a father to his daughter, then okay, stamp it inbred. But anything beyond that, you're not consistent with the policy, so therefore don't indicate those half-brother-sister or those uncle-niece crosses. And I believe that policy is still in effect today. But it's just interesting that you mention that. And uh, I um, I have always, my father and I, practiced uh, family breeding of the dogs. Uh, why, why do you like to do that, Amy? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. There's There's two sides to it. One, you don't lose what has made your dog so special by diluting it over and over again. So you can walk a fine line of having double the good, but you can also 
walk the fine line of having double the bad, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that's something that we, as breeders, we always try to double the good and we want to pretend that we don't get double the bad, but there, there are times that sometimes that, that works for you and sometimes it doesn't. And some crosses work better together genetically and some crosses don't. So I think it's, you know, for me though, we've always looked at it as we didn't want to lose Daisy. You know, we, we Mm -hmm. want a dog that comes out that we go, you know what, that reminds us of so-and-so. That's something Uh that so-and-so did. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you can see it when you do practice a breeding program like that. You can see it in little subtle ways. You know, we had a dog named Rip. When he sat down, he always lifted one uh, front foot foot up and just kind of held it there, you know. And his puppies would do that. Now, they pass on something like that, just, you know. But those little visible traits like that sometimes are pretty good indicators that there's also performance traits in there that are the same as those other dogs. Have you found that to be true? I have. Um, I, I truly do see that. It's kind of mm-hmm. like with your children, you know, you'll see mm-hmm. certain traits and then, you know, you see their genetic, you know, talents and you're like, okay, this is where this is coming from. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we, actually, yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, but, go ahead. One of the things that we did that we were kind of forerunners with when it came to the cur dogs, um, and you're seeing it more and more now, is we actually started DNA testing the dogs and looking to see the dogs that had the most fixed amount of genes. Um, a typical dog has about 20 to 30 percent of fixed genes. A dog that starts hitting over 50 percent, now those fixed genes could be colored. Don't, don't get me wrong, genetics are hard for us to you know pinpoint exactly what does what, but a dog with a higher percentage of fixed genes is going to reproduce itself more than a dog that's more diluted. So that's why sometimes you get, I, I, when you have a dog with all recessive genes and you hit into a dog that's extremely dominant, that's why there's some of those dogs that with the right bitch or the right stud, they're going to reproduce what you want from that dog that is so dominating. So that was something that we actually um, did that was kind of above and beyond what normal cur people do. We, we're, we're pretty into genetics here on this yeah, end. My dad, my brother, myself, it, it to us, it, it all goes back to the gene pool. Well, uh, just hearing you talk about it, I can tell that, you know, it's coming from a, a, a knowledge base, not just, a, you know, so many times we deal in old wives' tales, no offense to the, to the old wives. <laughs> but That's me, Steve. That's no, me. <laughs> no, no. But, you know, we do. We tend to to lean on these old saws, as they say, of, of uh, opinions and so forth. And uh, uh, But, uh, yeah, I tried to be a student. Uh, I was a seat-of-the-pants seat geneticist, I guess, in my years of, of breeding dogs. But I tried to read. I read Onstott, the uh, New Art of Breeding Better Dogs, and I read about Lloyd Brackett, who— they called him Mr. German Shepherd and the success that he had with family breeding dogs wherein he would take a stud and select the very best daughters of that stud and then breed them back to their sire and he produced just whole litters of champions. You know, of course, he was uh, producing dogs for the confirmation ring, but at the same time, you know, those things, if it'll work there, it'll work in performance dogs too, I believe. But, uh, 
anyway, really interesting stuff. Um, when did you start getting interested in the competitions and doing that sort of thing? Uh, the night hunts or squirrel hunts? Or, now, do you, let me ask this first. Do you hunt your dogs both ways, coon and squirrel? Uh, we have um, hmm. in the past. Um, Clay's Fred dog was probably one of the few, and, and my little dog that she's, she's pretty old now, but Rose P. Casey hunted her. And so we've used them both ways. Um, I haven't competition hunted in a while um, between kids playing varsity sports. And my when my job changed, I'm just going to be honest with the new job role I'm in is extremely demanding. So I keep them all down there. I'm keeping my peace. And I, I, I retire in four years. I just told Billy, I said, July 1st of 2026, I'm retired no matter what. And, you know, with that being said, the key is, I don't want to lose what I have, even if right now I'm not utilizing it to its full capacity. But you've proven that stock already. You know that it's worthy to use, I'm sure. Okay. Um, all right. Let's. Um, so, Daisy was your all-time favorite. Do you have other standouts that you remember down through the years, cur dogs that or cur crosses or whatever that you uh, you particularly remember or liked? Well, I'm going to I'm going to back you up to my Walker Hound, Gypsy. Um I was 12 years old and I made her a champion over in Walnut Grove, Illinois. My dad and my uncle were there and she was 10 months old. Um she was actually the dog that inspired me to 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 do things for the youth. Um I sent in her picture. I was so proud of myself. There are some really tacky pictures of me with my I Hunt Walkers mesh 1980s version <laughs> hat and some pants and shirts. My mom probably should have said that. That's not very flattering. Um, and I sent it in to the Terrain Walker Breeders Association. Um, I may have sent it into another Walker Association. A couple pictures talking about my dog making cha bench champion at 10 months old. And um, they ran my picture in American Cooner Ooh. and in full cry and my world changed Steve I remember it was a snowy day we got the we ran out we got the magazine and I remember laying on the floor and going through it and my picture was in there and I was like 11 mm -hmm. 40 years ago and to this day I can tell you exactly how I felt I felt noticed someone cared enough to run my picture and it changed my life forever because here I am, 51 years old, writing for the magazines, still involved with kids. So I did have one very special walker who changed my world. And then when it came to the cur dogs, um, my husband and he had a dog named Sage. And he was off of Star and Sour Sport. We had Sage, Ruby, and Grace. My dad hunted Ruby. My brother hunted Grace. My husband hunted Sage. And I don't remember who I was hunting. I had, I had some mountain cur females. I had Jane and I had Annie They to breed Sage too. But Sage ended up being um, the NKC Kern Feist World Night Champion. Billy handled him. Um, he, was, he was our everything. We, he got sick. To come to find out, somehow he had gotten something lodged between the lining of his lungs and it looked like he had pneumonia and he didn't. And we drove him to the university and to um, have his chest lining cleaned out, but he died before they could mm. perform the surgery. Mm. So that was Bill's favorite dog. And he, he, we'd shoot him and he'd fall over dead. And he was brindle and white and just as beautiful as can be. 
And we had a lot of good dogs in between, but then my swamp rat dog came. And he looked a lot like Sage, except he had one white eye. And I'm going to tell you, the gypsy dog had one white eye. I've always been partial to a white-eyed dog. I don't know what it is. And um, my dad had all the puppies sold. He he went and he took a dog that we had named Cedar, who was off of Copper and Ruby, a half-brother, half-sister cross, and he bred to Rat Attack. He went down to Buzz Lynch's, who, you know, probably thought he was crazy, but they had made another cross off of Rat Attack with a different cur dog that it turned out very well. So... My dad made that cross and all the puppies were supposed to be sold except we had four males and people who wanted females didn't transfer over. So my dad had this male puppy that was born on my birthday. So my dad spent my birthday that year watching this litter of puppies be born and we did nothing to acknowledge my birthday. And I was a little miffed. I'll just be honest with you. I was like, really? Dogs are more important than me. But he went to New York with my mom um, to visit a friend that they had met in the dog world. And this dog was the only one left. Swamp Rat. I would have never named him that, just so you know. My dad named him. And uh, my dad said, can you dog sit him? If I bring him over, will you dog sit him? He's the only puppy left, and nobody wants him, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and I've got this trip. So I took Rat that day, and Rat never left my house. <laughs> and Rat got me through my divorce. I, I'm not real good at dating. I, you know, Maybe when you are still have unfinished business with your, your ex, you, you know, I've met a lot of wonderful people, but just not for me. So I spent a lot of time with my children and that dog in the woods. Pretty much I dated Rat for many years. And he was <laughs> the one that I took to the PKC. That's when PKC had squirrel events. And he was the dog that I pushed the most. And uh, not, well, not dogs too many have like been. Him. Yeah, dogs have been responsible, I guess, for a lot of breakups, you know, <laughs> but I, I've never uh, really considered the fact that dogs are good for those times, you know, when <laughs> you need to get through. But uh, the first thing usually people do is when there is a, a breakup or whatever, they sell everything, you know, I'm I'm, I'm getting out, I'm selling the box, the light, the dogs, the boots, everything. But no, that's great. That's great, and that was a that was a significant um, dog in your breeding efforts efforts and all, wasn't he? I mean, yes, you, yeah. Tell us a little more about him. What he, what kind of dog was he? How did he operate, and uh, what did you like about him? Well, I'll be honest with you. The one flaw I didn't like about him is he was a little tree happy. Um, mm -hmm. I no offense. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's the rat attack in him, but. <laughs> Well, Buzz, you, probably, Buzz you, and them are probably going to kill me for that comment. No, well, they're um, used to it, I'm sure. <laughs> that was that was actually trainer error. Um, that was me being excited when he got treated and praising him too quickly when he was young, instead of making him produce the meat for me. Mm -hmm. So I do I consider that more my my error as a trainer than I do okay. actually the dogs. Um, but he was a squirrel dog. He was a coon dog. Um, not open. I mean, if he opened, it was a red hot track. Um, so when I would, when we compete with the curs, a lot of times I do have some that are open, but they're far and few between. So we do a lot of strike and tree. You know, mm -hmm. if you hear that dog, you know, you're pretty well, you know, going to be striking and treeing. And if they open on a track, you know that you can go ahead and strike them anyway, because <laughs> it's hot and they're going to end up with it. So we had him, um, at the same time, my brother, my dad had taken the same, uh, I don't know if he took that. I think he actually took a different female and he bred to um, X Junior. So mm -hmm. we had my brother's X Factor dog. So we had Rat Attack and we had um, X Junior in our lines at that point for when we crossed out. 
All right. And right. and we did some other ones like Gap and, you know, some different, you know, well-known dogs um, along the way. But, you know, those were some of our, our better crosses. All right. But Rat was just, he was my friend. He rode with me in the front seat. Um, my parents, I was traveling all over with this dog and they'd be like, you know, worried about me. And I'm like, he'd sleep on the seat next to me if I pulled off at a rest area. Nobody was going to mess with me with Rat in the, in the vehicle. Sure. sure. It's great to have a dog like that, you know. That's that's kind of what I, uh, I, I've wanted to do for a while. And I had that with the horse dog that I had the plot. And uh, he rode over 200,000 miles with me in the truck. And uh, it's just great to have a companion. And uh, the guys that say uh, that you can't have that kind of dog and have a good hunting dog or a, a good coon hound, I think they're missing the boat. For sure. I agree. Well, we touched a little bit on the the writing, and we know that you do write for American Cooner Magazine. You write for Full Cry. How did this uh, writing aspect of your life start uh, begin for you? So nothing in my life has ever just been something that I usually pursue. Every job I've had comes to me. Um, I've interviewed twice in my entire life, once for a job I didn't get right out of college in 1994 and once more for, um, a counseling center where I had to do my internship. So I had to sit down with the lady. Every other job has come to me, um, through my actions, through my work ethic, what people have seen, things like that. So, and, and going with opportunities. So, it was Junction, Illinois. PKC was having a, a bench show, and I took Rat, my dad and I. So I'm going to back us up. So when Billy and I got divorced, um, I was very well known with the Kerr and Feist Association and the Kerr Dogs, and to have a divorce was pretty devastating. So PKC was a place where no one knew me. So you didn't even know you met me that day. No one knew me, and I was happy. It was a fresh start for me to be able to enjoy the dogs without all of the connection of my failed marriage. So my dad and I drove over to Junction, Illinois, and Terry Walker happened to be there. And he had bought Full Cry at that point from Seth Galt. And he said, oh, you're, you're Amy, Amy Kovac Thomas. You know, you, you write for Full Cry. He said, well, call me on Monday. Call me on Monday. Call me at the office. And I was like, okay, whatever. You know, and my dad's like, what's up with that? I'm like, I don't know. So I showed my dog and, you know, we went on our way and my dad and I went home. And on Monday, I called Terry Walker at the office and I left him a message. Amy Thomas told me to call you. Here's my number. Call me back. Didn't hear from him. And I want to say that was probably March. Called him one more time later that week, you know, just following up again. Wasn't sure what you wanted. Um, he probably wouldn't even remember this. That's the He's probably thing in it. Mexico or somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I leave, I leave it be. It, it, it makes no difference in my life whatsoever. What Terry Walker wanted to ask me or whatever. So, um, Fast forward to July at the Breeder Showcase, and it may have been the first time I met you. I'm not quite sure. So I go to the Breeder Showcase, and Terry Walker comes up to me, and he says, Amy, I need to talk to you. And I said, Terry, I called you twice, and you didn't call me back. I don't really care what you have to say. And um, he said, no, really, I'd like you to start doing some articles. I've, I've been reading your article in Full Cry, and I would like you to start doing some articles for American Cooner. Okay, let's, let's back up just a little bit now. 
you started writing breed columns for the cur dog people in Full Cry. Then those were your first writings in Treehound magazines, correct? Yes, and I still do it every month. And that is, uh, tell our listeners what that column is that you that you write. It's it's the National Terrain Cur Association column. It's based upon dogs that were like mine that may not be full mountain cur. And don't get me going because I don't believe there's a full cur in the world because, you know, everybody wants to act like they came over on the Plymouth. And, you know, I'm thinking about all the hills of Tennessee and Homer knocked up, you know, this well-known female when he was nine months old. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. But I, I appreciate everybody keeping pedigrees going and talents going and bloodlines going. That I do respect. Um, and I will, I definitely, you know, honor that people have worked hard to continue. But, um, so yeah, I started writing the train Kirk column when I was 20, 20, 20. So mm -hmm. every yeah. month in full cry, you'll, you'll, I've got an article in there <laughs> to this I day. Got to write it this weekend. I read them. I still take <laughs> the magazines and I still read them. More and more people, I guess, are, are deserting us, Amy. They're going to the, uh, to the internet for their news, but a lot of people still like to hold it in their hand, and I'm one of those guys. But anyway, didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I just wanted to get that uh, established that you were already writing uh, prior to uh, Terry. Okay, so you meet Terry at the Breeder Showcase, and you agree to do feature articles for him, right? Yes. Okay. And then uh, what... Uh, does he normally uh, give you a, a decent notice about a, a certain dog, or you, do you just assume that if a dog won a major hunt that you're going to do an article about him? Um, in the beginning, he just had me going to, to um, events and writing mm -hmm. my event coverage. Um, mm -hmm. And the longer I was there, he wouldn't let me write the winter articles yet um, because he said I needed to get to know the people. I needed to get to know the dogs. I needed to establish myself first um, before he would let me write a, an article on a, a big winner. And I think my first article on a big winner was Grand American, one of the Grand American winners. So really, I was just going and selling magazine subscriptions for him and talking to people and taking pictures and writing features on the hunts. But um, somehow it metamorphosed to I, I really wanted to like to write those those articles. Vicki Lamb was doing most of them at that time. Um, and that was her her spot, you know, and she she had carved her way into, you know, that role. And so it didn't happen for quite a while. But when it did, then the floodgates opened and pretty much I don't even have my name on all the articles I write now, but unless it's got your name on it or somebody else's, if you don't see a name, it's probably me who wrote mm -hmm. it. So mm -hmm. I used to want my name on everything. Now I just don't care. I'm like, OK, yeah, if you can't tell it's my writing <laughs> style by now, you probably don't know me. Well, you know, that that's kind of we have some parallels in our our experience. When I was at UKC, I had never done any writing. Uh, I had sent a couple articles when I was in the military over in Japan, just really missing coon hunting and, and the dogs and all. And I sent a couple articles to Mrs. Walker, 
who was then the owner and, and editor of, of Full Cry, Estelle Walker there from Sedalia, Missouri. That's before the Seth Galt days or the Terry Walker days. And uh, anyway, but those were my only attempts, and they were pretty lame. I still <laughs> have those articles. But uh, when I went to UKC, they told me that, well, there's a column that we do in Bloodlines uh, every month called Coon Talk. And my predecessor, Andy Johnson, had been doing that. So I started writing that. It was about a page of copy that they expected of me every every month. And we didn't have computers back then, word processors or whatever. We had old IBM Selectric typewriters with uh, correction tape, and I went through reams of that. You know? <laughs> but I did, you know, there were a few little things along the way that helped me. Number one, I wanted to be with the girls, so I took a typing class in high school. I had a free period, the um, last period of the day for an elective, and I took typing. And I think I was the only guy in the whole class. But anyway, so I learned the fundamentals there, and then Uncle Sam uh, sent me through a typing course, too, when I went uh, in the Air Force. So I knew basically how to type. I knew how to put my fingers on the home row, you know, instead of being just a, a pecker, you know, just a hunting pecker, as we say. <laughs> okay, moving on. Anyway, um, but my experience, you know, became kind of like yours, I guess, when you said the floodgates opened because we decided to start trying to build Coonhound Bloodlines into a, a viable magazine where, you know, we were getting killed by Cooner and Full Cry. At that time, each one of those had about 30,000 subscribers, and we had 3,000. So that's when the Coonhound Bloodlines came along, and we are trying to build it into a magazine. So I found myself writing these breed articles for special issues. And, man, I know one issue there, I remember I had 20,000 words in that one issue. I'm like, man, this is a lot of writing. So, But I think about you— uh, and, you know, all the stuff that you've written down through the years, and especially like with Super Stakes, and you got three divisions now, and you got spring, you got fall, you got the youth program, you got all these things that you're writing about. And I know it takes a tremendous amount of time. Uh, how do you how do you manage all that? I, I don't know. I've always been really good at time management. Um like when you said that right now I am working on the super stakes and there's four divisions because there's the freshman. Oh, that's now. right. And yeah. 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 The baby stakes. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, pro hound has me write four articles and then Terry usually doesn't cover the, the freshman, but he does have me do the sophomore, junior and senior divisions. And I kind of know when those things are coming up that I'm not going to have much of a life. Um, mm -hmm. I will go to work. I will come home. You know, those are the times I, I try to run my dogs. We have a small farm and it's, it's all fenced in. So I try to get my dogs out a minimum of five times a week. Like mm. it, it bring it's my therapy. It's how I decompress mm -hmm. is being with the dogs. Um, but on those weeks and those times where I'm trying to interview and I dread, I'll be honest with you. I've never loved seeing owner handler as a winner as much as I do at the super stakes, because if there's four people and I've got to talk to four people and I've got to try to make that into one story <laughs> and I'm trying to correspond working full time, like I'm working, I leave oh, yeah. work every day at 6am and I don't get home till if it's a good day, three 30. 
So I'm trying to choreograph having these interviews. I'm typing. I've only had one semester in high school of typing also, Mr. Fielder. (laughs) (laughs) My mom did pay for piano lessons for many years, and I'm a lousy um, piano player. However, I say she made me a wonderful typist because of my fingers. Um, So I'm typing as they're talking. I'm sure there's some technological way I could make this easier for myself, but I'm I'm kind of old-fashioned in a lot of ways, you know, like tracking systems. I won't let my kids, when they were learning to handle, I wouldn't let them pull it out unless they need to find their dog. You need to know how to handle your dog. I'm just very, very traditional. So I'm typing as they're talking. I'm trying to Mm -hmm. choreograph. So I'm lucky. Um, The thing about Billy um, is, and, you know, when you're a man and you're a coon hunter, they always thank their wives in these articles. I appreciate my wife, you know, being so supportive. And I have to appreciate Billy for being so supportive um, because when I was in my 30s, I'd get up and I'd stay up late and I'd get up early and I'd write these articles. I I worked a lot more hours. I get tired. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm tired now. When I get home, I'm tired. So, um, you know, he will take care of things for me here. He will clean my kennels. I don't have a maid. You know, no one does my housework or my laundry. No one cleans my kennels or runs my dogs. He will fill in for me, you know, and he will do those things for me. And so that is what makes it easy. But I'll be honest with you, Steve, there's times that I have been typing at basketball games. There's times I've gone out of a basketball tournament to interview somebody while sitting in my car typing. Mm. I've gone out on my lunch break and typed Mm -hmm. in my car doing an interview. If you want to accomplish something in life, you can do it. But sometimes you have to plan ahead. You have to make sacrifices and you have to utilize every second that you have to do it. So I'm pretty quick. (laughs) I know that you are because you you look at the the fruit of your labors and and I know maybe uh, a lot of our listeners may not know this, but I do. Because I've been there, and I know the amount of work that goes into it. Yeah, I was laughing as you were saying that about being, sitting in your car. When I went to work for the AKC, I was on the corporate management committee. That meant I had to be there front and center for the board meetings at AKC. That's where the upper-ups, you know, come together once a month and go through the board book and vote up or down changes and all these kind of things. And the first board meeting I attended by teleconference, I was sitting on in a rocking chair on Johnny Brinkley's front porch in Tallahassee, Florida. (laughs) Uh, We'd been up half the night coon hunting, David McKee and Johnny and I, and Lee Kearns, and I'm sitting, sitting out there with cobwebs in my brain trying to appear uh, as if I know, and I hadn't been with AKC very long at that point. So we we find opportunities where we can, you know, I guess. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I understand fully. And and like you, I don't record interviews when I uh, when I interview or pick up a story or whatever. I tell the guys going in, I said, I'm, I'm typing as you're talking. Just keep going. If I need you to stop and give me a, a break there, I'll tell you. And uh, what I do is I just type all this ton of notes. And then as I start the article, I'll go back to the top of the page and I'll start right typing the article, the you know, the finished draft. And then if I extract, I'll go down through my notes and find something I want to use. Well, I highlight it. And then I copy it and I move. Do you do those things? And then I'll move it into the article, work it up, massage it a little and all. And then 
if it's highlighted, I know I've already used that part, so don't use it again. <laughs> so my methods are not orthodox at all, but uh, go ahead. So when we had, when I first started writing, I was like you, I used a typewriter. And sometimes my pages were crunchy because if my tape wasn't working right, I would use whiteout. And then when we got to use computers, um, I will generally, um, I send them a format of questions and I put the information under it, mm -hmm. the, the, but then I'll go through and I do the story um, mm -hmm. and I work that information in there. But when you were saying that, I was like, yes, that's what I do well, it, to a T. <laughs> so that's funny. But I don't, I'm going to ask you this, Steve. I'm not that it's, I'm not used to being asked the questions. I'm used to asking questions. Okay. For me, um, when I'm writing a story, and, I, and I'm just kind of curious, I like to, with fellow writers, to kind of see how things work for them. To me, it's an honor to tell a story. To win a Super Stakes, to win Autumn Oaks, to win the Grand American, to win Southeastern or Turing Walker Breeders Association, Walker Days, you know, to, to win these big events, I know the time and energy that people put in, whether it's the breeding program of the dog, it's the trainers, it's the owners, you know, we... You know, owners, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, they're rich. You know, they, they got somebody paying their way. But those people could put their money into horse racing. They could put their money into stock cars. They're choosing to help us continue our sport. And when somebody's out there every day and they're working hard to make a dog and a dog wins big, I get a rush on telling their story. Um, it, to me, is my honor to do it for them, just like it was an honor for me to see my article, my little tiny article when I was, you know, a young girl. And I send them the copy to proofread before it goes, because if there's anything they've said or they want to change or anything I've messed up to me, and, and then there's still mistakes that will fall through. Like I, I'll miss something, you know, that they said, I'll, I'll miss an email or something and it's been submitted. But to me, to be able to tell someone's story of all their hard work and the dogs, it, mm -hmm. it's an honor for me. It's, yeah. it's not a job. It's an honor. Absolutely it is. And, uh, you know, I said a long time ago, and I probably wasn't the one that coined this phrase, but I've always said that recognition is the name of the game. People don't really get into this sport for the money uh, uh, and all. You know, I learned when I was at PKC, I would pull into an event. At that time, I was editor of ProHound Magazine, and the guys would be jerking the handles, door handles off my truck. You got the latest ProHound? You got the latest ProHound? This is before the days of the Internet really getting huge and so much information online. And they were simply wanting to get that magazine and go through those, uh, you know, sire of the year uh, Pup of the Month, whatever it was, and see their name in print. Or if it's in the back, in that little print in the back where there was a hunt at Forks of the Creek Coon Club, and they got a, they were a split winner there. And there's my name. And you'd see them elbowing their buddy. Look right here. See, see right there? That, that's me. And we do. I don't care who we are. It's the recognition that we get from our peers that is important. And to me, I think the magazines will forever be important uh, to people that get out there. I think PKC may have learned a little lesson about that here just recently when they decided, you know, to, to do away with ProHound. And I can't imagine uh, how many phone calls Roger Dale got <laughs> during that time. And those guys, but it was very 
clear to them, and to their credit, they reversed that decision uh, and and said, no, our members want to still have the magazine. And, of course, I'm a guy, I'm an old guy now, uh, and I, I, I cut my teeth on, or virtually led, uh, actually learned to read on Kuhnow magazines. Full Cry used to come rolled up in a brown paper tube, uh, and not actually a tube. The brown paper was just kind of wound in it. You had to be real careful and slit it with a razor blade or put a knife under there so you didn't cut the magazine cover when you took it apart. And then you had to roll it, roll it the opposite way to get it to lay flat. But I looked forward to those magazines coming, you know, like um, Christmas, <laughs> you know, every month. So anyway, I think you and I will both agree uh that not only is it an honor to write about these uh, people that have done these things with their dogs, but it's also an honor to be able to be the one that gets to do the writing about them, you know. And uh, Do you agree with any of that? Oh, 100%. That's, that's why I asked you if you had that same feeling, because it's just... You know, I, I think people wonder why I, why do you do it? Like, in all honesty, like, it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm making bank or it's paying my bills or, you know, it, it, it really is just the honor of telling a story. And, and my writing background was just, I was voted best writer in high school and I did the awesome. newspaper and the literary magazine and had one semester of typing that that's all I mm -hmm. had, but it's, it's. It's my niche, and I know yeah. it is. It, and it helps me on my job now. I work with a team of some really wonderful women, and they say, how do you get – like the, our, our reports can be you know, 35 to 50 pages long. And they're like, Amy, how do you do this, and how do you finish this report? And I said, I'm kind of just <laughs> – you'd have to know what I do on the side. I can type fast, and I can finish a story. Yeah. Well, that's it, you know, and I think, uh, of course, <laughs> we I jokingly tell people, you know, I'm a fielder. You ask us what time it is, and we tell you how to build a watch, you know, <laughs> and, and I've always been that way, I guess, and as I get older— I, I've learned that, you know, I everything reminds me of something else. Everything reminds me of a story, a place I've been, a, something someone told me, a hunt I was on, whatever. So the stories for a guy my age are just endless. And I I like to tell them. My dad used my mother used to fuss at my dad for telling stories that she'd heard several times. And he'd say, Well, I know, but I want to hear it again myself. And that was kind of our way in our family, you know. We we told stories. My dad was a great storyteller. He he would tell you which side of the mountain the bear was treed on, which side of the tree the moss was on, which way the wind was blowing, what the temperature was, and and everything about the story. He remembered the most minute details, and. Uh, but storytelling is just something that comes natural, I think, and especially in our sport. What do guys do when they get together? They sit on the tailgate, they talk about their hunt last night, or they talk about a dog that they had or 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 whatever. And it's it's a storytelling sport, I think. And uh I will say I'll go on record as saying I enjoy your writing very, very much. I think you do an excellent job and I think our sport is all the better for your efforts. And I just want to publicly applaud you for that because 
You've always been uh, one of my favorite writers. And unfortunately, not a lot of people are writing, you know, about our sport. Uh, they're making little posts on, on Facebook and all. But uh, uh, anyway, that's enough of our mutual admiration society for this <laughs> evening. Uh, but uh, it's all all very uh uh, it's all very true from my standpoint, and I appreciate your remarks as well. Well, thank Amy. you, because that's really that's really what I contribute to the sport. You know, I'm not a competitor. I'm not out there coon hunting. Both of my children, you know, my son had the opportunity to hunt in autumn oaks. My daughter is probably the best handler I've ever seen in my life outside of her father. Clay's a little more high-strung like me. I think he, it gets to him a little more. But Rose is very mellow, and she's she's very talented. You know, so my contribution is not necessarily being a big winner. It's not going out there and competing against my my peers. I, I really don't have much to prove. I just like knowing I've never known life without a dog. I've never known life without coon hunters. I've never known life without squirrel hunters. And I just, I don't want to know life without it. Yeah, very well put. I think that would be a great place to stop, but I'm not through yet. I want to ask <laughs> you about your involvement with the with the kids with the PKC youth program and all you seem to be out of came out of left field boom you're right in the middle of it you're right out there and uh, I know that that's a big job I loved absolutely loved the uh, the finals uh, with the kids when I was at PKC uh, one of the things I enjoyed doing most was when we get all the kids after their dinner the first day there and we'd line them all up and they'd come in and we'd call their name and tell, announce their winnings. And we had George Strait on the PA system saying, Dad, this must be the best day of my life or whatever. And it was just a rush for me. Uh, but I wasn't actually working with the kids, but you were. How did all that come about? And again, once again, Steve, I never asked for the job. Never once. Um, so I guess I had started writing for ProHound. When I started with Cooner, Larry and Rita Meek still own PKC, and they asked if I would do some articles for ProHound on the winners. Because I actually started with ProHound before I started with Cooner. Hmm. And um, so they said, hey, um, Jason Miller has this idea for the Coon Hunting Series, little world coon hunting series where we have like a different program to get kids more involved. The goal was to try to get more kids involved. So it was me in a room with Jason proposing his idea. Um, you know, Roger Dale was there, Larry Meeks, you know, Reggie Ramsey, um, Mr. Kelly with K light there, there were all kinds of people in this room and everybody had great ideas. And you got to remember, I, I don't, I don't PKC hunt. I'm, I'm, I, I, I know the rules now because of my children and, and drilling the blue book into their head. And, the, you know, but like at that time, I didn't, I was just a writer, just a writer. That's all I am. So everybody's saying what they're going to give to this program to help this program succeed. And I said, well, I'll write a, I'll write an article each month. It's, it's really about the only thing I can promise you, but I can promise you every month we will have a youth article in the magazine. And I'd like to see it in Cooner. And for a while it was in full Christ for kids who, don't get pro hound. What's the point of writing an article if it's for the kids that are already involved in the sport? Um, and that, you know, with that registry. So, um, we tried this and it, it's not around today and I'm the only person left standing still writing an article each month. So <laughs> I'm at, I'm just 
involved with the kids, trying to get, you know, information for this article, um, helping out where they asked me to help out, helping with, you know, auctions, being at the Breeder Showcase. And I like kids. Obviously, I'm in education and I know what coon hunting meant to me as a child. So I want to see that fostered in others. And we're at the PKC World and I'm sitting at the table and Roger Dale introduces me as the national director. And I'm like, huh? What? Me? Like, I, I mean, people who are listening to this podcast are like, Amy? Amy? Sometimes I say bad words, Steve. Sometimes <laughs> I say things that people probably shouldn't say. Well, they probably should say them, but we normally don't. I'm that person. I'm always like, hey, let's just shoot the elephant in the room and talk about it. I'm all yeah. about that. Um, so that is how it all started. I, I just fell into it. And I love it. And so then I started doing a youth feature. Once again, this goes back to me being in the magazine as a child and knowing the difference that seeing yourself in the magazine can make. You know, the thing is, is kids have all kinds of sports that they can play. They have video games. They have all kinds of options. Um, but if somebody takes some coon hunting or somebody recognizes them, we plant a seed. And in high school, they may not coon hunt. They might be playing varsity football and they can't make the big hunts in the fall or they're playing varsity basketball. Or they might go off to college and they get out of it. Or they might get married and have, you know, a baby. And But that seed's planted. And we mm -hmm. never know when the seed's going to grow. Mm -hmm. They might, their son or their daughter might turn to be five. And they might be like, I'd like to take them out on a coon hunt. Or I'd like to take them on a squirrel hunt. We never know where the, when it's going to grow. But if we don't plant the seed, there's no chance of it. You know, it's kind of like the Bible verse, you know, of, you know, the seed falling on, you know, fallow ground. And you, mm -hmm. you, you don't know when a seed will take off, but you got, you got to try. You yeah. have to. Well, so that's you, how it happened. Mm -hmm. Well, you certainly did a great job in that role and have done that. And I, as evidenced by the pictures and pictures, they say are worth a thousand words. And when you look at the smiles on those kids' faces and, and all, and when they come up and, and they've been successful and, uh, uh, they, I was honored, uh, as you know, a few years ago to get to speak to the kids. And, of course, uh, and our dear departed Jarvis Humphers, I think, spoke the following year. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it is the future, but it is also the now in my, in my way of thinking. If we don't take care of these kids right now, uh, there is no future for us. So I'm I'm going to be one of those old guys that's going to be sitting back rocking and uh, and looking and saying, you know, I know the people that made this possible, and I'm I'm going to be proud that I knew those folks. And uh, all right. So hold, I do want to back up for okay. a second. Um, I did step down as national director um, last year. Um, nothing that I do has changed outside of Chris Freiberger, who ironically I met when he was a teenager and we were competing with our cur dogs. Um, he is now our national director right. and Chris, Chris knows coon hunting and he knows people. And I'm a person who can recognize if I can't, I could hold it to the status it was, but I couldn't make it grow. Not at this stage in my life with my job and, and my limited knowledge of, you know, putting on a hunt format and, and knowing where to go for resources and guides and judges. And, and Chris brings all that to the table. So mm -hmm. everybody's like, Oh, you're stepping down. I said, I'm not going anywhere. Everybody thought cause Rose was out of it or I became a grandma. I was done, but I still am doing the part I agreed to do all along. And you know what? We are, we've seen the program grow with 
new ideas and new blood. And, and, and I'm very proud to be working hand in hand with Chris Freiberger with yeah. the PKC youth program. Yeah. I hope to have Chris on this podcast because, uh, he's got a very important job. Uh, I don't know Chris personally, and I'm looking forward to spending some time with him. And I hear he's a great guy and very, very capable. And, uh, so yeah, well, that, that's great. Now I've got to ask you about something uh, a a tradition that started when you were on the road uh, working the events and all, and that's the famous Purple Purse. How did this go? Tell our listeners what that was and how it got started and and all that that entails. All right, so Grand American. Terry's there in the corner booth, and he takes me, and and I don't know, Steve, I, anybody in this sport is competitive. We are all competitive if by nature. Not one of us would be involved in, in, in this if we weren't. So I'm, I'm going to show Terry Walker I can sell magazine subscriptions. It do, I don't get a commission. It makes no difference whatsoever if I, if I would write up 25 for him or 125. It makes no difference. doesn't change anything in the world. But they've got this booth and they got the belts where you get your names on them. I got a clay and rose belt and they got these purses and they're heart shaped and they got they got fringe on them and silver conches. And and I'm looking and I'm just I'm me. I'm weird. I'll be the first to admit it. And I tell Terry, I see this purple purse. I think it's the tackiest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. Like I like it's not something, you know, I'm the Michael Kors girl and the coach purse, but I see this purple suede purse and I say, Terry Walker, if I sell, how many, how many subscriptions do I have to sell for you to get that purple purse? And he looks at me like I've got three eyes and he's like, I don't know, 125. I'm like 125. Okay. So the whole weekend, Steve, I am, I'm like, Terry, I'm at 88. Terry. I just got another two. We're at 90. I'm so close to this purple purse. Terry, I'm pretty sure is convinced I really want this purple purse. Like he thinks I like it. I really like it. And, and I'm playing. And I get to 122 subscriptions on Saturday at 4.45. People are drawn out. The crowd's over. Everybody's ready to go home. They bought dogs. They're done. And I'm like, Terry, I can't believe I failed. I was like three away from the purple purse. And he's like, oh, just go buy it. So I buy this tacky purple purse and I'm, I'm clutching this thing. Like it's the, the most wonderful item in the entire universe. And I'm going to wear it with, I'm going to buy matching purple suede shoes and gloves to go with this purse. And then I don't know how, because again, Steve, I'm weird. Everybody in the coon hunting world will tell you, Amy Thomas is weird. You don't know what you're going to get with me. It's going to be fun, but it could be a little weird. Um, I get a silver metallic paint marker and I decide I'm going to have people start autographing it. And that purple purse has, it has the UKC owner. Um, oh, the, the redheaded guy. Um, Wayne Cavanaugh. Wayne Cavanaugh. I get Del Morgan to sign it for UKC. I get Larry Meeks to sign it with PKC. It has all three owners on it. So people, I start carrying this purse and this pin. And people start asking me about signing my purple purse because I write about it. You know, it's part mm -hmm. of my story, yeah, yeah. my event story. And so people start asking. And I have a purple purse, a turquoise purse, a light 
brown purse and a darker brown purse. So I have only one that's not filled. Now, I quit carrying it because I felt like maybe that was overkill. But like, if this podcast renews the love for signing the purse, <laughs> this chick will take a purse and a pen to every event I go to. So you let me know if if your listeners want right. to sign the purse. All right, there you have it. There you have it. So there's it. the purse. So if I'm you weird. want the purple purse to come back to a major event near you, you need to go on social media to Gone to the Dogs podcast Facebook page and just simply put in the comment section, bring back the purse. And uh, <laughs> we, we will make sure that information goes right straight to Amy. So you, you heard it first right here, folks. That's I always great- said that if, if the right auction for the right cause came up, I would auction off a purse if people were interested. I don't know if I could part with a purple purse, but I have some pretty big names and signatures on some of the other ones. So yeah, I uh, I always said if it went for a good cause. But. Well, I know that I maybe somehow we can work this in uh, uh, together. Uh, if you can find a, a cause that you really want to do, we'll promote it here on this podcast, and uh, maybe we can sweeten the the pot a little bit. I just heard from the folks at W Hunting Supply, which I should mention to pay the bills. They're the <laughs> folks that sponsor this. Uh, podcast and make it possible for me to be on every week uh buddy woodbury and all the staff at du hunting supply uh our listeners should know that if you need anything in the realm of uh sporting dog equipment and especially the electronics and the service that you'll need uh, to back that up you need to contact w supply so there we've paid the bills for the week and uh, but anyway, I was told by Jason Doobie out there who oversees the the podcast program on this platform that uh, uh, I'm going to have some stickers available. So I'm going to have to figure out a good way to distribute those stickers. So maybe we can get together, Amy, and work up something on that. But uh, I'll leave that up to you. You figure out some way if you want to make a contribution and uh, to a charity of your choice. Uh, maybe we can make it happen. Hey, oh. I'm all for it, and if it's weird, you know I'm right there with you. That's <laughs> right. what makes that's what makes my my stories interesting, whether they're my own or somebody else's. Well, this podcast is coming on the heels of one that just aired uh, uh, last week, and that's with Dan, Daniel Felker and his Coon Hunting Confidentials page, where he were our uh, podcast where he delves into the mysterious, the paranormal the the cryptids and all that stuff uh as it is associated with coon hunting if you can imagine that so maybe uh a, a, a kooky uh contest for a purse might fit right into that <laughs> okay you alluded just a few minutes ago to the fact that you are now as you said a grandma tell us about this granddaughter Everybody well, wants to know, I promise you. It, you know, in the beginning, you, you you always wonder what grandparents are talking about. And I'm not a baby, baby person. Like, I, I do a good job with babies, but I like when they can respond. And, and Ellie is, you know, 10 months old. She'll be 11 months old, May 11th. And she can smile now. And she, they have a red bone coon hound um, that they got from Weiss Kennels up in Missouri. And she loves Roxy. 
This dog is so good with Ellie. She may never make a coon dog because she's a house dog and, and, you know, but she's beautiful and her and Ellie are already tight. And seeing that kind of takes me back to the, the black and tan, you know, mm-hmm. at the Christmas tree, you know, when I was a baby. And what's funny is, you know, you kind of talked about the paranormal. Last, well, I guess it was right before Tori told us she was pregnant. Um, I woke up and I always, I, I'm, I'm not the most church going person, but I believe in God and I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe that if you're open to messages and directions, God's going to take you there. You might want to fight it. I didn't think I'd be remarried to Billy Thomas, but here I am. But God's, God gives you direction if you pay attention or signs. I agree. And I usually find for myself their first thing in the morning. It's usually where my inspiration from stories comes, things like that. When I'm not quite fully awake and then it's in my brain. But I walk out my hallway, you know, with my hair all over my head, my makeup down on my face. I thought I got it all off the night before, but I was wrong. And I see this this blonde-haired, curly child in overalls running down my hallway. I don't know why. And I'm like, well, that was weird. I, and I couldn't tell. I thought it was a boy because it was overalls, you know. And I, I told Clay, I said, I think I saw my grandbaby. And a couple weeks later, Tori was sitting at the table. And I said, are you are you okay? You look different. And she was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm like, okay. So, you know, I didn't say anything. Well, the next day they came back and they said that she was pregnant. <laughs> and Ellie has blonde hair with these crazy curls like clay had and um you know when things are meant to be they're meant to be and i'm looking forward she's you know tori's got a very good family and this baby it's nice to see in the world a baby that is so loved from every side so they're kind of the city feet you know the family and they're fun and and, you know, enjoyable and, and we're the country grandparents on the farm. So, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to taking my grandbaby out with the squirrel dogs and, and riding on the side by side and, and catching crawfish and frog gigging and doing all those things I did growing mm. up that, that mm. made me who I am today. And, and you can take mm-hmm. me somewhere fancy and I promise you, I can use the right fork in the right order and I know how to behave myself, even though a lot of times I don't. But there's a side of me that you can't put me in a creek that I'm not looking down for a crawfish to catch, you know, or I'm wanting a frog gig and and things like that. So, you know, I'm looking forward to raising a a granddaughter who can go to plays and fancy places and wear dresses, but also run down my hallway in a pair of overalls so we can go outside and get muddy. Awesome. You know, I have a granddaughter in Chicago that I don't get to see very often. My Christopher has one child, a little girl. Her name is Chloe Jolene. I think they named her kind of a country-sounding name just for me. Maybe I I like to think that. I love her name. She's absolutely adorable. And, of course, she's, you know, the love of my life. Uh, Grandchildren are so incredibly special. And I didn't know that. Ella, you know, of course, we each had uh, marriages before. And... uh, uh, and she had four daughters, and so she has uh, now altogether. I think there's seven grandchildren because her one daughter uh, has a blended family now, where she had two children and he had two. So uh, anyway, and and we love them all. They're just great, and and can't get enough of them. 
But that little girl, um, her mother was born in Greece, and she's got that kind of wavy hair and all that stuff. And she just got me tightly wrapped around her finger, you know, and she calls me Grandpa Steve. And uh, we FaceTime all the time, and and we're going to see each other a whole lot more. I'm going to be knocking on their door <laughs> every few <laughs> days if we don't. But anyway, they're great, and I, I so enjoy your posts that you make on Facebook with your family, and you're really great about posting those family pics. And don't ever think that they're not enjoyed because I can tell you well, one guy you. that enjoys them, that's for sure. And we're not a perfect family. We we but we're we're a good family. You know, my dad came over for Easter and and growing up our house was a little was a little chaotic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. and my dad didn't get to experience a relationship like my brother and I have with our spouses. And so it was just different. They did the best from where they came from, but they both came in with some baggage and that's just part of life. You you get baggage along the way. But mm-hmm. he came to Easter and you know with me and my family and we had dinner and everything was great. And then he went and he saw my brother on the way home. And, you know, I called him the next day and he's like, it's so, it's so different, Amy. There's, it's just, everybody gets along and it's just, <laughs> it's calm and, and it's, you know, but, you know, we're not a perfect family. We have our moments and we have things and, you know, I've had family strife, you know, with my dad and my brother. But in the end, if you're willing to work on things, you can bring it back around, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and I say that with therapy all the time. People will be like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, hey, if I can remarry my ex-husband and, and we mm-hmm. weren't kind to each other at the end of the marriage, if you can forgive and you can say we're di- we may be different, we may not agree. We may agree to disagree. Exactly. Whether we're coon hunting against somebody or we're in our family or it's our relationship or our children, you, as long as you communicate and you're respectful to each person, you don't have to agree. So it was really neat at Easter to have four generations and have my dad be able to experience with both of his children what just a regular everyday holiday should be like. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, in the activities leading up to my mother's funeral, I was able to spend a few days with my son, Christopher. And, you know, being an only child and going through his parents being divorced and all, it was a, a rocky time for him. And it was a rocky time for my relationship with him. And over time, you know, we began to build blocks, you know, like you say, baby steps one at a time. And now, you know, when we get together, it's just a joyous time. I mean, I got to spend three days here in Florida. He had a conference in Orlando and and said, Dad, I want to come down for about uh, three days. And, uh, uh, you know, and of course, I jumped on that like a chicken on a June bug, you know. (laughs) <laughs> and we got to go around and see some of the places and 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 that I I enjoyed and some of the places he remembered as a kid uh, coming to Florida, you know, because his mother was from Florida, and also just the yeah, it, his family is so very very important, and it doesn't have to be per- perfect. Uh, those imperfections, I think, just make. Them. You know, my dad was from a big family in Tennessee and would go there and they would argue over anything. I mean, someone would say the sky sure is blue today and they'd say, no, it's the cloudiest day I've ever seen. But they loved each other tremendously. You know, they just like to argue. <laughs> <laughs> 
But anyway, well, Amy, it's been absolutely delightful to have you on this podcast. I know our listeners will agree. I sure would like to have you to come back sometime. Maybe you can bring uh, Rose and, and Clay with you and Billy, and we can get everybody on here. And we can, maybe we can ask them, is there a side to Amy that we're not seeing here? Maybe they can tell us something. <laughs> well, what I'm going to tell you, Steve, is what you see is what you get. Good bad, <laughs> ugly, pretty. I'm just me. And it's all I can be is me. Um, well, like I every, said, well, I can say that everybody loves that. And that's been part of your charm all along. So with that, Amy, is there anything that we should have talked about or we said we were going to talk about and we didn't or something that you would just like to say before we uh, wrap this thing up? Um, I would like to say something before we wrap this thing up because, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've played different roles. People have seen me at the hunts. People have seen me at the different stages in my life. Um, but the one thing that I can tell you, Steve, is I really appreciate you having me on here because I haven't been able to travel as much the last few years with my children playing varsity sports. I stepped down from traveling because I didn't want to miss out on my children's lives. And then COVID hit. Rose graduated in 2019 and I thought I'd be able to go to more events and then the world kind of fell apart. And I, I miss my friends. You know, you were talking about Johnny Brinkley and I still have the walnut bowl. We're rehabbing the house and that is not one of the things that is getting, you know, changed up. You know, I, I miss the adventures, you know, we, I miss do, you know, interacting, having dinner with you or, you know, seeing people that even though I may have seen them only once a year at the grand American, they're my friends. And, and and they will always be my friends. And we may not talk every day, but I really want the people who are listening to know that I appreciate them. I appreciate the friendships. I, I never understood why people brought me gifts. I was like, I'm no different than you. Like, you know, um, you know, people would bring me chocolates and, and, and things like that. And I, I never understood because I, I to me, it's, it's as I told you earlier, it's my honor to interact with them versus thinking I'm special. I'm just a storyteller telling people stories and hopefully making somebody smile. And, you know, I'm not perfect. I've, I bit a kid one time in the youth program because he wouldn't get his finger out of my face. And Rose still tells that story to this day because if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Ask Billy. That's how we ended up divorced. But, I, you know, the fact is, is I'm authentic and yes, I've met are. a lot of wonderful, wonderful people. And it's a blessing. And I just want your listeners to know that I appreciate the honor of coming on this podcast. I've only listened to one podcast in my whole life. I'm not good with auditory. I'm a, a visual person. <laughs> and so this might be my second one I listen to. Or I may not listen to it and be like, I'm afraid I'm going to sound like an idiot. But it still gives me a chance to outreach to the to the people who matter to me. And, and I'm getting ready. I'm working on being a, a a case manager for a foster child, like a special advocate. They, I won't have a foster child, but I'll be with them till they're placed. And they said that what builds resiliency is community connection, you know, accomplishments, feeling like you, you've accomplished something. And all of those things are what make our coon hunting world what it is. We have community. We have connection. Yes. We feel accomplishments. Yes. And I think that's why no matter how this world turns out, and I'm I'm a little disgusted with it, as I'm sure you are. Sure. But some of the things I see, I know that those people who have their children and have their dogs in the woods, and whether they're rabbit hunting, squirrel hunting, 
fox hunting, coyote hunting, duck hunt, even if bird hunting, you know, we have a community and a connection and we will be resilient no matter what. And so I just want to thank you for allowing me to touch base with the people that I've missed at the Grand American and the Autumn Oaks the last couple of years. And, uh, and I want to thank you for thinking highly enough of me to have me on here. Oh, well, that's probably the easiest choice I ever made. I've been podcasting now for about three years, and all of a sudden, I'm like, duh, you haven't had Amy on yet. Let's call her up. So thank you so much for coming, Amy. It's been delightful, as I knew it would be. It always is. Uh, uh, I know the last time I, you and I had dinner together, Rose was with us, I believe. It was at Orangeburg, and uh, it's always great to see you at the events, and I sure hope you'll be out there at some more real soon. And uh Gee, it, it was a great visit. Tell tell the family hello for me. Tell everybody uh, that I, I look forward to seeing them again and keep those pictures coming on Facebook. I will. Thank you. All right. Well, folks, if somebody asks you, hey, where's Steve Fielder these days? You tell them he's gone to the dogs. Well, it's that time in our podcast once again to visit with our friend Fred Moran, the Redbone Man from Pennsylvania. Fred, how are you doing today? Well, could do better. I lost my tracker. I don't know if I lost it in the woods, misplaced it, or what. This is the second one I've gone through. I'm bad at not keeping track of things. But I called an old friend, and he says, well, he can't let you go without one. He sent me one. And I got it today, and it works fine. So I'm back in the business again. I'll be darned. Well, you know, Fred, those things have got, uh, what What kind do you use? Is it a garment? Yeah. Uh-huh. Is it the? Uh, 230. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. My kids, my kids got one of the alphas. Yeah, I like mine better than I like his, so I use mine all the time. I got you. And he wouldn't care if I used his every day of the week. The only thing he does with it is he's got a couple beagles come rabbit season. And other Mm -hmm. than that, and he had a good bobcat dog. We used it a lot in the winter when the snow was deep and that. And uh, we put him to sleep this winter. He served his purpose. He was a good a good dog. I bought him in Tennessee off an old guy down there, and he swore by him. My buddy did, too. We bought him and never regretted it. He was, he was a nice dog. He had Triacoon uh, along with a bobcat, but uh, he liked a bobcat. And there was something for <laughs> us to do. Yeah. When the snow got too deep and you couldn't coon hunt. Yeah, I tell you what. Well, when you're eight, how many 80s is it now? 80, what, your your age? 85. 85. Well, when you're 85, you got to have a lot of stuff to keep you busy. You know? Oh, I'm, <laughs> I, I keep busy. Well, it's you got more- me by 10 years, Fred, and I get tired sometimes, and I, want, I admire you for sure, your energy. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'm running out of it slowly. <laughs> it's hard to keep up with the younger ones. Yeah. And well, uh, well, especially that's if sure. I take if I take a grandson who's fourteen, what's the matter, old man, you can't keep up. <laughs> oh, that gets me. I, I can't let him beat me. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, well we've, been, we've been hunting. I got two guys coming tonight. We're going to see if we can run a sick one that don't run too far. Yeah. Got a young dog coming on real good. I like mm. him. I mean, there's there's a lot of things I'd like to fix on him. But all in all, he's, I think if nothing happens to him like another car, you'll be hearing about me. Well, that's he's great. He's got a mouth. He's got a mouth that'll hurt your ears. And he's mm-hmm. a tree dog. My buddy, Herman Gehring, he used to hunt with me all the time. He moved and I moved. Now he's back in my area. And he goes, he don't have a dog anymore. He got a squirrel dog, but he goes with me quite a bit. And I seen him in the corner in the woods a couple of nights ago. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm counting. I said, count what, money? No, I was counting how many barks the dog give. And I said, well, how many? He says, 84 in a minute. I said, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> and uh, so. You bet. You bet. How's uh, this dog bred, Fred? He, he's out of a female I used to own. I called her brown sugar. She got Lyme disease on me. Mm. And I think every vet in the country gives that for an excuse. When they get one that's a little down now, oh, he got Lyme disease. I get tired of hearing that. I says to the vet, I said, are you sure it's Lyme disease? He says, that's what the test come up. Well, I got a little disgusted. Marlon Martin and I have done some business through the years. He's up in Michigan, an Amishman, real nice guy, and he'll tell you the truth. I told him about the dog. He says, how much you want for it? I give Martin a little bit of a deal, and he called me up after he had her about a month. He says, because to me, she just wasn't the same dog after going through the treatment for Lyme disease. Well, I don't hear get, that's the way it works. I've heard don't, that before. Don't get me wrong. She, she ain't out of gas or anything like that completely, but she ain't the dog she used to be. I mean, I used to whack these guys. Now maybe I get waxed once in a while. But anyhow, so I give him a good deal. And he called me up one day about a month after he had her. He says, I'd have liked to have seen that female when she didn't have that Lyme disease. If she's that good now, I'd like to have seen her then. I said, I'm glad you like her. I said, she was a good dog. I said, I, oh, Scott Perky, a good friend of mine up here. Got a, had a good red dog. He was a grand night champion. I whacked him bad one night with him. But it, it, Perky don't hold nothing against you. He just giggles and goes on with the flow. And he hunted with her after she contacted that Lyme disease. He said, Fred, I can't believe that's the same dog. She sure has changed. And she did. Now, I never hunted with her more than two times or three after she got that Lyme disease, and I could tell the difference right away. But Marlon seemed to think there was nothing wrong with her. I'm glad he saw it that way. But this pup I got is out of his dog that he calls Badger that he raised. And um, the female is uh, the sugar dog, which goes back to the woody dog of uh, uh, Doug Moore's. Right. Right. And uh, I like I like him. He's he got a mouth that hurts your ears. 
he is a tree dog. So, well, does he have those eyes when he trees? That that seems to uh, be my fault, uh, my he, problem here the last he's been, year. He's been accurate so far. Uh, yeah. I hope he don't get in that habit. I treat a coon. <laughs> I treat a coon two or three nights ago, and I, I know for a fact he didn't tell me his name, but I know it's the same coon I treat in the winter time. I treated about five trees over from where I treated in the wintertime. And he's an extremely big coon. I know he goes anywhere from 25 to 27 pounds. He's that mm -hmm. big. Yeah. And uh, I said, I'd like to crack him out of there and show him to all my buddies. But <laughs> he'll be there. He'll be there when the big coon contest comes. <laughs> and, and there you go. <laughs> two days later, I treat another one that I've treated before. This time he was laying on a big old hawk nest uh, by four trees from where I treated him the previous time. I know it's the same coon. Yeah, he's and, hanging right in that same area. He's staying right in that area, and I hope he does come November. But, uh, so I got two big ones to look forward to. There you but go. The coonhound's been good. That's so. good. Well, springtime has come to Pennsylvania, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, you can tell that not from crops or anything, from the green briars. You know, mm. if, you got, if you hunt in them, you'll remember. Oh, yes. Strangers that don't, uh, you're not used to hunting in them come up here and they say, you can have that hunting in Pennsylvania. I don't want nothing to do with that. But you you get used to it. And if you wear a good pair, some kind of covering like Carhartt or uh, Chaps or something, you won't feel them too bad. I had a girl hunt with me. I got three girls. Everybody thinks I'm a lover. Yeah, you're a ladies I, man. I can I, tell I, that. I got three different girls to hunt with. One has dog, Patty Busy, and she'll go every night if you call her. But I want to hunt my own dogs usually, so I call the other two more. So one, I just call her Blonde Bomber, but her right name is Terry. Well, she was out with me a couple nights ago, and uh, I says to her, the dogs split tree, but they weren't far apart, maybe all oh, 30 yards. I said, you go get the young dog. I said, now watch him. He can pull, jerk him on his hind end. Don't let him pull you all over the place. And he hears the other dog down below treeing, and he decides he wants to go down there and look. He pulls her along, and he's pulling her on her belly. She hit her head on a tree, got a oh knot on her head, mm. got a knot on her head, then her nose started bleeding. Oh, oh it, it was it was so comical, but she didn't think so. And I finally got her down on the road, and she's sniffling there and everything. I said, "When it happens like that, leave the leash go. Then you won't be pulled to her." <laughs> I didn't think of that. So <laughs> I, we had an early hunt. I took her home. She. She was sniffling and everything else. But well, they're going to get you for domestic abuse. That, I know. Uh, right. I know. But I, I bet if I call her tonight, she's ready to go. Uh, she your, likes to hunt. Your story, uh, Fred, your story reminds me of when I was a kid. Our kid, Coon Club, 
used to get uh, coons for restocking. In fact, a lot of them came from up your way in Meadville, Pennsylvania. I know uh, just who uh, the guy's name was Hunter. Paul Hunter. That's correct. Yeah. And, and so when we'd take the, the coons out to turn them loose back in the early days, some of these dogs in the southern part of West Virginia had never seen a coon. And so the habit was the guys who'd usually, if they had a young dog or something, they'd just take it along just to let it see that coon in the cage and watch it go when they turned it loose. And my dad had a couple of dogs there, and I don't remember which ones they were, uh, but I must have been about eight, ten years old maybe. And he said, and, and he was releasing the coon. He said, now you hold these dogs and don't you let them go. I don't want them catching that coon. You you just hold them right here. And I had them on a double, what we called a double couple, where we'd take ah. an O-ring and a about four S-hooks and make like a double couple for them, you know. Uh -huh. and, and I'm holding these dogs. Well, when that coon came out of that cage and took off, boy, those, coon, uh, those dogs gave a lunge. And just like your friend there, they pulled me right on my belly. And here I went down through the woods. I looked like one of those guys on a Western, you know, when he's trying to stop a team of horses yeah, and they're dragging I know what you mean. And, and I said, man, I can't let these dogs go, you know. And I was eating it, man. I was eating dirt and, and, and stumps and everything. Else. And I finally hooked, I got them in one hand on the leash and hooked my arm around the sapling and got them stopped. But uh, I, in my case there, I would have got my jeans uh, uh, warmed up probably if I'd let those dogs go. You know, speaking of them coons, there used to be, well, I know you heard of this guy. He's been dead though for a long time. Uh, James Bruce had a red dog. Oh, name. yeah. Bruce's Pokey Big Bill. John. You remember uh, Bruce's I, Big John? I know. Pokey Bill. Yeah. <laughs> I had a female. Well, they didn't have no coon down there. I used to hunt not far from them. I stayed with an old couple. A buddy up here had a big farm, and we'd go down there, and he'd just do nothing but sit on the porch. I hunted with everybody down there. Well, anyhow, they didn't have no coon, though. And uh, it was hard to get a strike. But uh, they start, they heard of Paul Hunter. And uh, anyhow, they got in touch with him and started buying coon off him. He'd bring him a whole truckload of coon. And right. each club member of their club would get maybe 10, and they could turn them loose anywhere they wanted where mm -hmm. they hunted. And I asked Paul, did you ever hear Tigum or anything to see, or not Paul, I, I asked James Bruce, I said, did you ever hear Tigum and that to see where they'd go in that? He, he said, Fred, in 20 some years of doing that, I got one coon of all the ones I turned loose and I got it at a farmer friend's my 28 mile away. Mm. That's a long way. It is, and, uh, you know. In my opinion, I've trapped coon and restocked them. In my opinion, when you catch a coon, you mark it, and nine chance out of ten, it'll be back where you turned it loose at or, or got it from within a, a month's time. Well, I've done that a lot of time. Now, they don't all do it, but majority of them do. And uh, I uh, put an ear tag in her ear and stuff like that. 
but they just have a tendency to go back where they come from. Well, Fred, yeah. we're going to have to stop this session right there, and I will put a little uh, uh, punctuation on that. We bought stocked coons from all over the country there and brought them into southern West Virginia, and the best ones that we got were those Pennsylvania coons that we got from Paul Hunter. But down well, through the years, we got them from Florida. Those coons didn't do well at all. No, uh, we no, got they s- won't. Yeah, and we got some from out in West Texas uh, and uh, brought them in, and they did fairly well. But you're exactly right about that. Well, listen, let's wrap this one up, and then I'll call you back uh, here in a few days. The next time right. we're ready to record a podcast, uh, I want to hear the story about that coon hunt you're going to have tonight. Okay. We'll All right. Try. Oh. All right. Take care. Okay. You're going to tell uh, JJ good night? <laughs> uh, JJ loves that. He likes to hear that. He'll call me up. That's on tonight. That's on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks. Well, that's the great Fred Moran, the Redbone Man from Pennsylvania, and he'll be back next episode. And, uh, That's all for the Gone to the Dogs podcast for tonight. Hey, JJ, I'm still thinking of you.